Well, if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, we'll spend a little time in the Word in Matthew for the rest, all the way up through Christmas and uh, actually through New Year's. We're just, we're going to allow a, a rich Christmas hymn or carol to uh, lead us thematically into the Word. And this morning I've chosen O Come Emmanuel, which we just sung, we've sung. O come Emmanuel. Emmanuel's Hebrew. It means God with us. And O come Emmanuel is maybe one of the more uh, Jewish Christmas carols that we have. And it surfaces, in fact, because here in Matthew chapter 1, uh, the writer of Matthew, the very first prophetic word that is sort of fulfilled in the New Testament involves the word Emmanuel. So I thought what I would do is I'd read this section of Matthew and then we'd uh, f- follow the, the scriptures and the song where it takes us. I'm in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And, you know, before I read, uh, just take a look at the table here for a second. Normally at Christmas, there'd be a manger and some wise men and a few animals and a a little hut and a lady kneeling and a man kneeling. Um, What we would historically call the nativity scene would be here. And This morning, I'd like us to think of this as our nativity scene, okay? So rather than us focusing today on how it was that Jesus came to be, I would want our hope to be, or our interest to be, why did he come? Not how did he come, but why did he come? And so this morning, the Lord's Supper is our nativity, um, because this is the reason for which he came. Now let's go ahead and read Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The song Emmanuel, O come Emmanuel, is anchored in the Old Testament scriptures, probably more than most. Think of the next line, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lonely exile here. 
It's very, it feels odd to say, but it's a very Jewish Christmas song. And it's, the song sounds as though it's written out of exile. It, in an odd way, again, it's one of the saddest sounding Christmas songs that I think we sing. It has in it a longing, an exilic longing in the song as though it was being written from exile. This song reminds us that the advent of Christ, or what you and I would commonly call Christmas, is not really the beginning of the story, not actually, not at all. In fact, the advent of Christ is the culmination of a great longing that had been building among the Jewish people for seven or eight hundred years. As as the history of Israel grew on and as their own earthly prospects began to fade away, their sense of we can do it on, on our own, just the decline, the, the decline of Israel because of their faithlessness, as that took place in, throughout history, what God did is he brought alongside of Israel uh, prophets who had a word about someone who would come and make things right. And over this more than 500-year period, one word was being added to another word, and pretty soon there was this grand, very significant anticipation of a Messiah coming. There were things that they thought they knew about him. And yet they missed him. I find that interesting, that something you deeply long for, something you are crying out for, and that the prophets are speaking of, and that you're holding on to, and you're preserving, and you're, you're cradling among your people for seven, eight hundred years even, that some of these things, when they finally take place, you miss. How does that happen? We look here in Matthew. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I mean, that seems pretty plain. That seems pretty clear. It seems like, well, how do you... Well, I want to show us a little bit how something can be missable, lest lest you miss what's happening uh, here today. On your screen in a second is going to be Isaiah 7. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want, but... Uh, Isaiah 7 is going to be on your screen. This is the section of Isaiah where that prophecy comes from. So I want to give a little bit of background because, well, it needs it. Uh, Isaiah the prophet is serving during the time of a man whose name is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is uh, a wicked king. He really has no time for the Lord whatsoever. He By the end of his life, he will have removed the altar of God out of the temple and replaced it with the altar of the Assyrian God. Okay, He is a very pragmatic spiritualist, which means he prays to the one who will give him what he wants. And Yahweh is not to be owned by a king. But there's more to it than this. By this point in Jewish history... 
the country had split into two countries. So there was a country that is called Israel, which was 10 of the 12 tribes. And then there was a country that was called Judah, which was the remaining two, Judah and some others that had been sort of absorbed into it. And they were at civil war with one another by this point. So, so imagine this, God's people, God's selected people who were supposed to enjoy the land in peace are warring with each other. And Israel, these 10 tribes that had left, they left everything about the Lord. They left Jerusalem, they left the temple, they left the stories, and they've embraced other gods, okay? By this point in history, they've, the worship of Baal is commonplace in Israel. By this point in history, there, there's really not that much left in Israel that looks, has God's fingerprints on it. And in this scenario, in Isaiah 7, the the tribes of Israel have allied themselves with an outside pagan nation to come down and destroy Judah. And they've surrounded the city of God and they're besieging it. So just take this in for a second. The people of God in the north, the, the... the people of God outside the wall have made themselves closer to the godless nations than they are to their, their own people. It says, when he came down, they struck down like 120,000 men of Judah on their way towards Jerusalem. So the God's children outside the wall don't belong to him anymore. And God's children inside the wall are living underneath a wicked king who has no time for God. Nobody in Israel is looking to God is the feeling you should have when you come to this section of Scripture. It's just so, so sad. And it's here that Isaiah comes to Ahaz. Ahaz, in this very moment, He's with his leaders and they're, cons- they're looking at the armies outside of the city and the scriptures say that he, the king and his men were shaking with fear like trees that shake in the wind and, and they're there and Ahaz comes, comes to him and this is what Ahaz says. I'm going to read 10 verses. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is through Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and, she, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now I'll stop there because it, it sounds so much like Christmas, right? Does that sound like a Christmas reading? I think when you read it here in Isaiah, you understand how they missed it in Matthew. I think, and you can think, well, you should keep reading. That'll give me context. Actually, I'm protecting you from more confusing context. If you keep reading, it gets less, even less clear than it already sounds. 
How is it a prophet goes to a king to encourage him, the king doesn't have any time for God, and the the responding sign that the king's going to have from the Lord is that a virgin's going to be with child. How does that even work? How does that, of all the things for the Lord to brainstorm, as a sign, how, why is that the effective sign? With retrospect, we can look at the virgin birth and go, ah, I see, Isaiah 7, virgin will be with child. But, but I think we could also understand how someone could miss him. How is it that a people for seven or 800 years have this continuing, growing anticipation of the day of the Lord and of the Messiah, of the Savior, of the one of God who will come and save them? How can they have that growing anticipation and miss it? Well, I think part of this is, part of understanding this is stepping back from this this picture in Isaiah and taking things in a little bit, like things like this. In Isaiah, we might say that the line of kings had failed. God was supposed to help them with through the kings, and the kings have failed. God was supposed to help them through the people, and the people have failed. In in the picture of Isaiah. The line of men has failed. You have Jewish brothers fighting Jewish brothers and allying themselves with pagan people. There's no group for the Lord to turn to, to use. Everyone has failed. And in in that sort of sense of failure, right, it's almost as though, you know, One person could say, we want God to save us from the enemy outside the gate. But the problem is, is the enemy inside the gate is every bit as bad as the enemy outside the gate. To destroy the enemy outside the gate doesn't put Israel in any better position because it still has a wicked king over it. The line of mankind has failed to reveal God to the world. And God's answer is, I am going to bring you a man who does not come from the line of men. And he will be called God with us. Now in that setting, if they had appreciated it that way, they might have been able to see. If we fast forward to the life of Christ, we find that his, the life he lived and the ministry he had doesn't look very much like the nativity scene either, right? We sing songs like Silent Night. Well, that doesn't typify his ministry. You know, the somber, quiet, baby Jesus Christmas that we've grown accustomed to does not look like the actual ministry of Jesus. I mean, he's a, he ministers in power. But if you note, given all of his power, so Jesus can heal, and he does heal, but he doesn't heal everybody. Jesus can make the lame walk, and on occasion he makes the lame walk, but not all the lame walk. Jesus can restore sight to the blind, and there are occasions when he finds someone who's blind and he restores sight to them, and they see again. Jesus can cast out demons, and he does sometimes cast out demons, but he doesn't cast out every demon. 
Jesus can walk on water, but he doesn't always walk on water. And he can multiply food, but he doesn't always multiply food. Jesus has all of this power that he doesn't seem to always use. And when the people see the power of Jesus, you know what they begin to think? They think maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one that we've been thinking of for seven or 800 years. Maybe he's the one who will rescue us from them or from that. And then this happens. He's crucified. His body's broken. His blood is shed. He's laid in a grave. Side is pierced. His life is mocked. His disciples are chased away. He's cast in shame. And how do you miss that? Even the disciples of Jesus Christ did not see this coming. My sense is that when we think of a Savior, our default way of thinking is is we want someone to come and save us from, from that thing, from that affliction, from that wound, from that trial, from those people, from that injustice. You see how we do that? We define the Savior as to what he will free us from. Israel wanted a savior to save them from the enemy and Jesus came to save them from themselves. Jesus can free you from affliction, but he's not going to always free you from affliction. He has the power to free you from affliction, but that's not why he came. That's, that's not really why he came. Jesus came to save you from yourself. Jesus came to offer you life Because the line of men has failed. In you is not the capacity. You do not have the capacity in and of yourself to stand up victorious before the Lord. That is the one thing we cannot do. And that's the one thing he's done for us. And so as we come to the Lord's table here, let us do it just beneath beneath the gospel that Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, perfect son of God shed his blood for us so that we might be saved from ourselves. And that this Jesus Christ died on the cross, was crucified and buried. On the third day, he was resurrected into glory and sits at the right hand of the Father and will one day come to judge all of mankind and make everything just right. But until then, you and I have the great hope of being saved from ourselves because the line of men has failed. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach the table now, Lord, we we approach with a mind towards why you've come. And to those of us who are in Christ, Lord, we receive. We receive the reminder of the grace that we have with you. We accept communion with God with us, Lord, that you would place yourself among us. 
in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial, surrounded by evil, evil within, Lord, that you would come in the midst of all of that in such purity to be a friend of man, Lord, for that we give you great thanks. And we pray, Lord, that this hope would be lavished on the earth. Forgive us of our sins as we come to you, Lord. We pray this in the confidence of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.